There's a classic preacher joke, a classic preacher joke that you may have heard. It provides a little window into a common problem that lots of churches have. There were three pastors who were having lunch together, and they figured out in the course of their time at lunch that they all had the same problem. They were all facing the same issue. All three churches had bats in the attic. Not baseball bats, actual flying bats. Well, one pastor tried to solve the problem. The preacher tried to solve the problem with a shotgun, and as you can imagine, that didn't even remotely begin to solve the problem. The second preacher said, well, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to collect all those bats, and I'm going to drive out to the country, like, you know, Camp Creek, and, uh, and let them go uh, out there uh, by Viking Mountain, you know, and, and maybe they'll, they'll leave us alone at church. Well, as you can imagine, by the time he gets back to the church building, the bats were back in the attic. The third preacher said, well, they are no longer a problem at my church. And the first two said, how how'd you get rid of them? And the third guy says, it turns out it was really easy. I baptized them, and they haven't been back since. <laughs> I feel guilty for telling that joke. <clears throat> and it's a little silly, but isn't that sometimes what it's like for us in our relationships with God? We sometimes act at church like a public profession of faith or our baptism means that our work here is done. Sometimes we act like that, like we've signed the public contract and we are on the team, so why worry anymore about it? It's sort of like standing at your wedding, facing your spouse and saying, I do, only then to go your separate ways. Living separate lives as if the other one doesn't matter. And that there's not a need to foster a relationship with that other person. That's sometimes how many, all of us in our own ways, approach our relationship with the Lord. The amazing thing about this kind of element, this bat story, for example, is that it can be told in any church. One problem for us as the modern church is that we struggle with not just attracting but keeping new members. We, we, we struggle with keeping people, which doesn't make sense because attending church nowadays is easier than it's ever been in the history of the planet. Think about it. In our country, you're not likely to be arrested. You're not likely to be executed, thrown in jail. You're not going to be in trouble for attending church, at least not yet. It most likely won't hurt your career. In fact, coming to church might help your career. Our churches are extremely comfortable nowadays. The buildings are air-conditioned. We have PA systems so everyone can hear. We have closed-circuit television here in our congregation in four different places, actually, so that if you're sick or need to take care of your child, you can continue to be a part of the service and watch it on TV. Our pews are cushioned, so you don't have to sit on hard wooden benches. The services don't last for hours and hours as they used to not too long ago. You'd think that these kinds of changes of making it easier would mean a larger church than, say, 50 years ago. 
But the fact is, when you compare percentages of church membership to the general population trends, it shows that the church is smaller than it was when it was harder to be here. But when you look, friends, at the early church, you see almost the opposite. You don't see this kind of problem. In fact, the early church changed the course of human history with relatively no resources compared to us today. In spite of having, compared to us, no financial resources, no buildings, no seminaries, thank the Lord, no parachurch or missions organizations, no denominational headquarters, uh, we have resources coming out our ears nowadays in the modern church. And yet we struggle. We struggle with this issue, this problem of seeing the Lord work through the power of the Holy Spirit to make the people into the kind of organization or organism here where people can't help but be a part of what's going on. Why do we struggle with that? I think part of why we do is we do not live our lives outside of this place, outside of this hour, in a way that makes room for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, at least in some general terms. If we were going to talk about what the Holy Spirit means and what that word looks like throughout Scripture, we'd be here for 12 to 20 weeks. Easy. Talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and what it means and how it works. We, we could talk about this for week after week after week. But we're in the middle of a, a series uh, called Theosaurus. Actually, we're at the, the end of our first portion of Theosaurus. Theosaurus is a way of us talking about how we can have the mysteries of God in our hearts and our minds so as we walk around in the world and with each other, we have truth about who God is at the ready so that we can communicate that truth. Theos means God. Sorai means treasury. We want to be treasuries, walking treasuries of the truths of the mysteries of God. And so, in most of the series, we've been talking about a word. We talked about Lord's Supper. We talked about baptism. We talked last week about incarnation. And we sort of defined what those meant. We're not going to have the time today to do all of that. But we do want to talk about what an Acts 2 church, what the early church looked like when the power of the Holy Spirit was real and present and active and living in the lives of those people outside of this place. There's a truth about the Christian life. You sitting here right now, your presence here only works as it's meant to work when the Holy Spirit is a part of your life after you leave this building. Your faithfulness to the Word and prayer and the presence of God in your life outside of this place is the number one factor as to whether or not your involvement, your presence, your worship here is helpful in shaping who you're meant to become. And I propose to you that there's a whole raft of things we could talk about today, but there are going to be two main factors about the Holy Spirit-led church that we want to look at today. The first one is this, and it's on your outline there. 
the Holy Spirit-led church. The Holy Spirit-led church possesses an atmosphere in which God is free to move. An atmosphere in which God is free to move. That's the first uh, blank there on your handout, is move. If you haven't yet, read uh, with me in just a second here. Acts, the second chapter. We're going to look at these uh, verses here in Acts 2 and refer to some other ones along the way. But we're going to start with Acts 2 uh, in those first few verses, verses 1 to 4. Go ahead and read along with me here if you haven't yet turned there. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. By the way, today is what we call Pentecost. It's 50 days after. Pentecost, 50 days. And so here we are on a day when the church has traditionally celebrated 50 days after Easter, after the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're studying Acts 2 here on purpose. Read with me Acts 2, 1 to 4. First verse, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushy wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're going to start with those first verses there. What usually attracts our attention as we read these verses first are those, those crazy phenomena that are described in verses 2 through 4. Things like the mighty rushing wind, the flames of fire, the speaking in tongues. All cool things, but we're not really going to focus on those today. Because I want you to hear this next part very clearly. This next part about the Holy Spirit. These things we've just mentioned, those, those fantastic, those supernatural phenomena are important, but they're not something we're going to focus on. Because they are symbols of the power and the presence of God. They are symbols. In other words, they are demonstrative of the fact that the early church was a place where God was moving. They are not the power themselves, and they aren't even necessarily the kinds of experiences that we should be trying to reproduce in and of themselves. In fact, more than supernatural phenomena and symbols the supernatural power of God that we are trying to tap into is to be a Holy Spirit-led church where we possess an atmosphere where God is free to move in our hearts. That's the real power of the early church. It wasn't because they had tongues and flames of fire. Those things were signs, symbols of the presence of God moving. The fact that's demonstrated here is the key fact in this first verse. Look at that first verse there. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The key fact is that they were together when Pentecost occurred. The word all there in verse 1 refers to 120 followers of Jesus who were assembled in that upper room. We know that from Acts 1.15 in the previous chapter. It says in Acts 1.15, in the previous chapter, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So we know that there were a number of people there. And they were all together waiting for something to happen. They weren't yet sure what the Holy Spirit would look like. 
They weren't sure what it was going to do, what, what it would look like. But they knew, as we'll see in John 14, they would, they would know beforehand that the Holy Spirit would be the continuing, empowering presence of God the Father and God the Son. If we were going to define what Holy Spirit means in one basic uh, way, we're going to say that that would be that the Holy Spirit is the continued, empowering presence of God the Father and God the Son. That's an important point for us. Look in John 14 for just a moment here. John 14, verses 16 and 17. This is the part that tells those believers, that 120, to be ready because this thing is going to be coming. This comforter is going to be coming. John 14, verses 16 17, they say this. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus talking here, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That word there that says helper in my version is also translated as comforter in the King James Version, or counselor in the New International Version, or even advocate in a couple other versions. Uh, comforter, counselor, counselor, helper, advocate. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is going to be a continuing and power-bringing presence for us, a third part of the Trinity. So as you can see, they were together because they were waiting for this helper to come. They had cultivated an atmosphere where God's movement determined their action. They had created in their lives an atmosphere where God was free to move. And why did that happen? Two main truths. Two main truths we're going to focus on. The first is this, obedience to his word. The first reason that they created a place where God could move through the Holy Spirit in their lives was obedience to his word. That's the next uh, blank there in your handout. The followers of Jesus were all together in one place because of the word that he had given them just before he ascended. That is, just before Jesus left earth. He says this in Acts 1, 3, and 4. Turn there for a moment here. Acts 1, 3, and 4. This is how we know that they were obedient to his word. He presented himself alive to them. This is... Jesus again, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Wait, wait, wait. So his word was him standing there and telling him, telling them to wait. Well, yes. That was the word. And guess what? We also just read the word. And so, so what we're saying is that even though Jesus was right there with them, telling them to wait, what part of our experience today, what part of our experience this many years after that first Pentecost is different when we read right here for ourselves what to do? Friends, the application is for us as well. Obedience to His Word. One truth about the Holy, Spirit's, the Holy Spirit is that it exists as a comforter to reveal the power and the presence 
of the risen Christ to us. So when we read these truths in Scripture today on this page, we are reading them as if they are coming to us from the risen Christ because we have the Holy Spirit among us. What do we not yet have? I ask you. What do we not yet have thousands of years after that we're still waiting for? Scripture? No. We've got it. The Holy Spirit? No. We've got it. You see, God has commanded us, just like those first followers of Jesus, that 120 people here listening on Pentecost, He's commanding us to the same things. He's commanded us to preach the gospel, to feed the hungry, to clothe the unclothed, to visit the sick. He has given to us His perfect Word in the Scriptures. And in them we have, as 2 Timothy 3 says, all we need, everything you need, is here for us through the continued empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and comfort us and teach us, rebuke us even, to correct or to train in righteousness, as it says. Everything you need is here now because the Spirit and the Word are active in our lives. Or are they? Except for your hour here on Sunday mornings. Are they active in your life because of what you do outside of this place? Friends, obedience to His Word is one of the most important factors for the continued empowering presence of the Holy Spirit among us here as First Christian Church. And that doesn't just happen because you've listened to a sermon on Sunday. Hopefully that's just the beginning for you. We want your worship here on Sundays. We want your worship here on Sundays to be directed by the Holy Spirit. Many, by the way, many perceive that to mean that the Holy Spirit's role has to be something that is spontaneous or out of nowhere or something unexpected. But think about this. The first believers expected it. The first believers knew through the Word what was going to be coming. And so... The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives might just be to convict us throughout the week as we are reading in the Word and in the Scriptures so that your presence here is not relatively useless in comparison to what it could be. If you think that your presence here in worship alone is enough, then you're missing part of the equation. The Holy Spirit must be present in our lives through the reading of the Word in order for this here and now to be convicting for you. If it here on Sunday mornings, if your worship is not led by the Spirit's work in the Word in your lives throughout the week, then your worship here will be a dry and dead duty. If you don't have a plan for reading Scripture throughout the week, if you just think, you know, I just, I think, I think I'll read this. And as I remember, I, I'm just going to sort of open it up and, and, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo point. Friends, you need a plan 
for the word being a part of your life throughout the week. We have plans. (laughs) They're on the resource tables. They're called Bible reading plans. They're available to you throughout the week so that you can make what you do here on Sunday mornings fruitful. Otherwise, without the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, convicting you through the word throughout the week, this will be dry, dead, boring. This will be a waste of your time. Friends, the word is given to us so that what we do here now can be active, living, powerful, meaningful. The first thing they demonstrated is obedience to his word. The second thing was faithfulness to his promise. They demonstrated faith in his promise. The promise is that second blank here under that first point. 1B, faith in his promise. You see, they were waiting together because they believed. They knew and trusted in their hearts that Jesus was going to fulfill the promise he had made a few days earlier when he said in Acts 1.5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were anticipating the movement of God, especially because Jesus also told them what would happen as a result. Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He told them what would happen as a result. So no wonder they were waiting together. They had faith as the gathered body that Jesus was going to be faithful to his promise. Because they were 50 days after the time when he rose from the grave and he demonstrated himself to them. Acts 1 says that he showed them, suffered, and showed them by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. They had faith in his promise. They did not want to miss out on the promises of Jesus. They knew that whatever was about to happen, it was going to be important, and they all wanted to be a part of it. Is that how you think about what we do here? Do you have faith that the promises of God will happen for us as we meet? Are you anticipating the movement of God as you come to worship? The power of the Holy Spirit convicting you through the word throughout the week is going to be something that helps you remain faithful to his promise to show up on Sunday mornings. Do you feel that way about what we're doing here? Do you have faith in his promise to show up and to be the God he says he's going to be for us, even here at Little First Christian Church? There's that wonderful old gospel hymn that says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and to obey. It's funny how, in spite for us, in spite of being witnesses to the fulfilled promises of generation after generation after generation of believers who have gone before us, we sometimes end up not even trusting the Lord to be faithful to his promises for us. Instead, we sometimes work in the flesh. We set up these human-centered scales of measurement for whether or not faithfulness is occurring. I'm afraid, friends, that many of us are still waiting for Pentecost to happen. 
when it is available through obedience to his word and faithfulness in his promise. The second main characteristic of the church that is led by the spirit that we see here in Acts 2 is this. A spirit-led church grabs the attention of outsiders. That's the next blank there in your outline. The spirit-led church grabs the attention of outsiders. By the way, there are many things that we could say about what the spirit-led church is, but we're just going to focus on these two today as it applies to us. Repeatedly throughout the the book of Acts, we see that the church was too powerful a force to be ignored. It was like an unstoppable force in the cities where the church was led by the Spirit. It's been said that religion is either a dull habit or an acute fever. Say what you want about me, but I'm hoping people look at me, they look at us, they look at you, and they say that we've got a fever. The church here on Pentecost Sunday had a fever. After the sound of the wind and the sight of the flames of fire, the crowd had gathered, and it was amazed to hear the disciples speaking in different languages. At this point, as they're speaking these different languages and these these things are happening, they were probably in the temple courts with at least 3,000 people there. We know this from later on in chapter 2 in verse 41, where it tells us that 3,000 were added to their number that very day. And so a whole crowd had gathered. It had grabbed the attention of people around seeing what was going on. Look at verses 5 and 6 here in Acts 2. It begins to tell us about how this spirit-led church grabbed the attention of outsiders. Verses 5 says, uh, 5 and 6 say, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They realized that this, this thing going on there on that Pentecost was something out of the ordinary. And they were intrigued. Just look at verses 7 and 8. It says, They were amazed. They were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They wondered what all this meant. They didn't know what what was going on here. So look at verses 12 and 13. 12 says they were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? A spirit-led church attracts attention to itself. People cannot help but notice. When the community sees the kinds of changes in people's lives and hears the testimony of believers, they will not be able to resist the temptation to look and to be aware of what's going on in that church. It's important to realize at the same time, though, that there are some who are not going to look so fondly on what's going on in that place. There are those who, even in the presence of the miraculous, just like we see here in Acts, can only be cynical and judgmental and negative. Look at verse 13. But there were others who, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. 
Some in the crowd were mocking and making fun of what was going on. Obviously, they're drunk. That's what they thought. So as the crowd witnessed the miraculous events of the day of Pentecost, their reaction was either amazement or amusement. But whatever the case, they were unable to ignore what was going on. In 1981... Howard Cosell was voted both most loved and most hated sportscaster in the same survey. That's because his personality was, was so overbearing that either you loved him or you hated him. But whatever the case about Howard Cosell, you, you could not ignore him. That's how the world, in a sense, must react to Jesus. Because this is the Jesus who said both, he who is not for me is against me, and also said, he who is not against me is for me. He made it clear that you cannot ride the fence concerning your relationship with him. There is no neutral ground. It doesn't exist. So as the world examines us as the church, their reaction to us must be the same. They will want to join us and be a part of what's going on, or they will ridicule us. But if we are led by the Spirit, they will not be able to ignore us. We need to ask ourselves today, how do we, how do you, how do I, how do we compare with the early church? Do we cultivate in our lives an atmosphere where there is room for God to grow? There can almost be no more important question for you and I than that. Are we creating, are we cultivating a place in our lives where our relationship with you and I and with God can continue to grow? A place where the Holy Spirit is free to move. Are we creating and cultivating that kind of atmosphere here at First Christian Church? where we grab the attention of outsiders. Because, friends, to the extent that we accomplish those questions, those goals, we will determine how effective we are in achieving the calling we have as the people of God. You see, the early church as we saw here, it's more than just a social gathering. They were, they were God's people committed to doing God's work. Can that be said of us? Are we God's people committed to doing God's work through God's processes, through God's spirit, through God's means as the Holy Spirit convicts us? Or are we so busy being God's people according to the ways that we think it's meant to work committed to doing God's work our ways the other church was a place where God moved in their lives because of obedience to his word and faithfulness in his promises they changed the course of history more than any other ever has so let's be a church that outside of this place, outside of this hour on Sundays, 
is having the word be a part of our hearts and minds so that we can be faithfulness to his promise that he will show up in the power of the spirit to use even our frailties and our foibles and our sinful motivations, even the ways in which we go about God's things in our ways for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now admitting that for all of us, wherever we are in our journeys with you, for all of us, we have failed to be obedient to your word. We have often led our lives as if the spirit of man has more to do with who we are and what we're going to do than the spirit of God. We've upended your created order, Lord, and, and worshipped idols and people more than we've worshipped you. We have, Lord, cultivated a place where we do your work sometimes in our ways. And so we repent. We ask that you would help us to turn from those selfish ways, those human-centered ways, so that we would work in the power of the Holy Spirit and that we would allow your word to be deeply rooted in us throughout this week, throughout the days beyond Sunday, so that what we do here would be fruitful for the purpose of you shaping us. Father, make us a people who are obedient to your word and faithful to your promise. Make us a people who possess that characteristic of making room for the Spirit to work in us. Make us, Lord, the kind of people who are attractive to those who don't yet know you. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we make ourselves attractive to one another. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are attractive to those that don't yet know you. Make us a Holy Spirit-led church, Lord, so that what we would do here on Sundays, the songs we sing, the words we say, the prayers we pray, all of our study, our time together, would be used in a way that brings you fame and your name glory. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.